Fresh Economic Thinking podcast, new ideas and analysis with Dr. Cameron Murray and Jonathan Gadir. Hi, Cameron. Thanks for joining me again today. Uh, everyone's talking about gas, so I think that's going to be our big topic for today and just uh, what, uh, what emerges from it. But I think first we're going to do a Barney. What's your Barney today? Well, the Barney today is the uh, online fights I've picked about the idea of transitioning from stamp duties to land taxes. Um, most economists think that swapping from a tax on trading property to a tax on owning property while generating much the same revenue is a really good thing. Um, and to be honest, I used to think that too. So, uh, but what's happened is the more I've looked into this and the more I've studied the ACT where they've done a transition towards more land tax, the more I've realized that the gains are not as big or substantial um, to justify the hype and to justify the political um, cost. Now, we're expecting in this week, so if you're listening probably last week, for the New South Wales government to announce that they're going to um, have a transition from stamp duties to land taxes, and they're going to do that voluntarily by letting people choose when they buy a house, whether they sign up to pay that stamp duty or pay a land tax per year um, on that property indefinitely. And essentially, my argument is um, that economists have fooled themselves into thinking that this there are huge efficiency benefits. They've um, allowed a myth to propagate that stamp duties add to prices rather than subtract from them. So for example, if you buy a half million dollar house and you've got to pay 25,000 stamp duty, you're essentially showing that you're willing to pay $525,000 to buy that housing asset. Now, if you get rid of stamp duty, you're still willing to pay 525000 for that housing asset, as was the person next to you at the auction bidding. So you're going to bid up against them to, to get that asset at that price. And so um, we've sort of, in this weird debate where we're willing to give up a lot of revenue for swapping one pretty good tax on property for another pretty good tax on property, and I'm just not sure uh, it's worth the hype. Uh, so that's my Barney, and I've, I've I've sort of been arguing this for a couple of years now. I wrote an article in the Conversation, uh, I think in 2019, saying, "Do you know what? We've just got the economics wrong here. We've fooled ourselves into thinking there are huge efficiency gains where there really aren't that many. And to be honest, we haven't even looked at any of the downsides. So, for example, um, if you you're taxing the trade of a property asset, so you're reducing the number of trades. Now, if, if you're reducing the number of trades of investors who are going to be quite sensitive to the price of trading, then what you're doing is you're reducing the number of potentially forced moves on tenants if investors prefer to sell vacant property to market it better than occupied property. Forced moves on tenants, why? why because if you're an impact? investor and you want to sell... Uh, it's usually better to sell vacant because it it broadens your potential buyer pool to owner occupiers as well who want to move in straight away and need to need to move in. You've got you don't want a sitting tenant with another seven or eight months on the lease when you're trying to sell because you're narrowing your buyer pool. 
Um, so you might want to kick those tenants out when you sell. Yeah. And if there's more investors selling, then there's more of these forced moves. Whereas the logic of stamp duty is that uh, we're going to um, make the market more mobile and flexible because all these homeowners are going to relocate um, because it's less costly. But you know, it's not a tax on mobility. It's a tax on trading the asset. And investors are a large part of that asset trading business. Okay. Well, that sort of gets into this whole area of should investors be such a large part of the the property market and um maybe that's a topic for another yeah. day i mean uh, yeah, they probably my view is they shouldn't be and we shouldn't be dis we shouldn't be encouraging places where people need to live to be traded like widgets or you know like shares yeah exactly but, yeah but that's i mean that's that's where we are and i think you've got to um factor that in when you're making tax changes and and in New South Wales, this proposal uh, is suggested, we, we don't know the details yet, to reduce their tax revenue by $2.5 billion a year during this transition period. And the question really is, well, is it worth giving up that tax revenue for a questionable net efficiency gain in the property market by uh, replacing and, one property tax with another? Uh, interesting. Um, all right. And so that's your Barney. And now yep. moving on to our substantive topic for discussion for this week, I am going to read you something from the, which was published in the Canberra Times a couple of years ago. It was written by Ebony Bennett. Ebony Bennett is Deputy Director for the Australia Institute and a former Greens media advisor and a regular columnist mm -hmm. for the Canberra Times. Again, this was uh, August of 2020. And it says this. Here's how the gas industry shafted Australians over the past 10 years. As my colleague and Australia Institute Chief Economist Richard Dennis has pointed out, Australia once had abundant and cheap domestic gas. The federal government then allowed the gas industry to build massive LNG gas export facilities so that gas companies could sell Australia's cheap gas overseas for higher prices, simultaneously driving up domestic gas prices. Just as Ireland was exporting potatoes to England during the Irish potato famine, Australia has abundant and cheap gas. We just allowed companies like Santos to export it overseas for bigger profits. On the east coast of Australia, gas production roughly tripled and so did domestic gas prices. In the past few years, Australia has overtaken Qatar as the largest producer of liquefied natural gas, but Qatar is better at managing its mineral wealth. In one year, Qatar received $26 billion in royalties from LNG production, while Australia received around $1 billion from our poorly designed petroleum resources rent tax. Gee, wouldn't it be nice if we had an extra $25 billion in gas royalties right now? Over to you, Cameron. <laughs> this is... Like, this is not new. It's just new that, you know, the world prices for various reasons are higher than they were before. And yeah. now all the results of our idiocy or our elites, our corrupt elites are coming home to roost. That's my take. My yeah. Agenda that, for today. That, <laughs> look, there's a lot of truth to that. I know Ebony, and that's a pretty good um, summary of the situation. Uh, and it's not... It's not exactly unique to Australia, this current energy crisis. I think that's worth keeping in mind. Every country that has is essentially 
um, paying the international price for gas is in the same situation. Only places like Western Australia that has a reservation policy that of 15% of gas in new projects to must be reserved to be sold domestically are able to create this wedge between the global price. So what you're seeing is really places that have gone all in on um, the market to decide uh, what to do with the resources, the gas, have really been hit with a bit of a, um, an energy shock right now. And that's true globally. Places that haven't, we've got the Northern Territory, which has a separate grid. They are 90% gas and they've got no issues because they have a long-term uh, supply agreement for gas, uh, just as many uh, international customers have. So they're still paying uh, the price from a, an earlier agreement. Now that might change at the end of that agreement. We will see. The ACT doesn't really have energy issues right now. They're mostly on renewables and they've had a lot of recent investment as well. So they're not also as exposed to this market pricing. So uh, look, I think we could have definitely taxed gas better, especially connecting to the international market. Um, and we have done a poor job of that. And I definitely think that political relationships were influential in that. Uh, the Petroleum Resources Rent Tax, I reviewed about five years ago. Uh, there was a review into taxing gas and minerals. And I had a look at that. And I I'm, I'm going off the top of my head, but when that was introduced, it started raising quite a lot of revenue. So the petroleum resources rent tax is for offshore gas, and it's a federal tax. So it's in the offshore Northwest Shelf, for example, where um, the states don't have the jurisdiction to tax, so the federal government was taxing. And it started raising quite a bit of revenue. Um, I think it was $2 billion in its second year of operation. And then what happened is that um, it was modified so the deductions you could make to generate this tax base. So essentially, you've got to account for how much money you made minus what you can deduct for that project. And the leftover is your sort of profits on that project. And the extra petroleum resource rent tax applies to that accounted profit. Now, it's, it's a sort of made up number. And what they did after a couple of years was they changed the rules and said, what you can do is you can deduct exploration expenses for other projects from your uh, resources rent um, profit calculation. And so then the revenue from that uh, tax started falling once again. So definitely uh, lobbyists are at play, political relationships are at play. There's definitely a game of mates happening in energy and resources as there is in every country. Uh, the question is, um, what could have been done differently, I guess, to be in a different situation today? And I think... It doesn't the Labor government in WA illustrate how what could have been done differently. You actually negotiate and you call their bluff of the big gas industry and you say, no, you're not doing, you're not getting yep. your contracts unless we get our 15%. And you know, eventually it works. Like, you know, they, they try and say, oh, no, it's not, it's not feasible. We're walking away, blah, blah, blah. And then yep. they go, oh, actually, we, we, we thought again. And when they see that the government's serious, uh, oh, yeah, we can, we can do it in the end. We, we, like, we did the numbers yeah. again and actually. Look, you know that's, what I mean? Like, you're exactly right. That's exactly what could have happened. Um, you could have reserved 15%. You could have um, had a um, government um, 
sign some kind of long-term agreement with price limits that if you want to export gas, you have to agree to supply um, locally up to some a limit at a certain price. Yeah, or lots of variations on that theme um, could have been done. Uh, I think it's just worth keeping in mind it's not a uniquely Australian um, issue, these political games. Yeah, and, capital, and the, capitalists yeah. and so, political elites are, are, you know, venal and selfish in yeah, all countries. So th- yeah. Yeah, that's def- that's definitely the solution. Um, uh, we're going to end up, I think, in that debate we had about the minerals minerals resources rent tax idea about retrospective taxation. And you can't change the rules on people, but I think you know every rule is retrospective at the end of the day. Every if you've made some investment in your future and something changes, you know it's a retrospective. Mm-hmm change like i went and studied to be a doctor and then you know there's a new uh, invention that means my specialty is outdated okay that's a retrospective change because i've invested in some mm-hmm. previous um skills right so i and th- we'll probably mm-hmm. go through the sovereign risk debate as well if we try and do that as well <laughs> but yeah look you can do it the gas is there mm-hmm. the equipment's there if you if you um negotiate to um, pipe gas to a different place uh, for a different price, it will happen. <laughs> okay. Um, so I want to broaden this out a bit. Okay. So this is one example of maybe what I mean, I'm now speaking to you as the co-author of a book called Game of Mates, uh, which is about what could be called grey corruption, mm-hmm. um, the nexus between you know, big business and political elites and you know, reg- regula- regulatory agencies that and and so is this like okay i see this as an another example of how corruption in australia is something and maybe in other rich countries is something that only the very rich and very big companies can participate in mm-hmm. like you look casino uh, licenses um mm-hmm. mining licenses um property development um all those things you wrote about in the book, mm-hmm. Game of Mates, examples of like big, well-connected industries that give donations to political parties or they're just you know, personally very influential and well-connected, getting their way through these sort of, you know, intricate regulatory arrangements mm-hmm. or, you know. Okay, when I go to Thailand, I see that corruption is very democratic. It's open to everyone mm-hmm. to participate mm-hmm. in. Anyone, no matter how low down the socioeconomic ladder, can you know, get the rules in some area of life bent if they can slip usually like in the scheme of things, not a very large amount of money to someone on the bureaucratic chain or in a, in a police force or some other government agency, right? Is that like a really weird thing to say? Like, do you, do you see what I'm driving at, like in, in the third world corruption could potentially be better than the kind of corruption we've got. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, look, you, you're really thinking with an economist hat um, about this and what you've said is, is true in many ways. So economists don't take a moral stance on corruption. They, it's not the case that we say, Oh, you broke a rule to do a favor. Therefore it's bad. We say, what outcome happened? Did you improve economic activity and well-being from that or not? So uh, there's the phrase greasing the wheels corruption. So if you've got rules that are inhibit investment and, and, and trade, 
uh, and you've got corruption that overcomes bad rules to increase economic output, well, that's a good thing. And maybe that's the case in Thailand in certain areas. Then we think about um, a different type of corruption, which uh, is more what I think happens in Australia, where we have a lot of rules, quite complex rules, and these rules essentially create a barrier to entry for new new businesses. And so it yeah. gives the incumbents an advantage because they know how to um, negotiate these regulations. And you know, it's just another way of saying regulatory capture, that incumbents um, become sophisticated. They like more regulation because more regulation benefits them and keeps out the competition. And definitely it's the case that in Australia, that's more so what um, we see when we think about corruption and grey gray corruption and political favouritism. So, for example, um, in, in the pharmacy industry, the Pharmacy Guild um, wants strict rules about um, supermarkets owning pharmacies or mail order um, medicines or uh, multiple pharmacies in the same shopping centre. So they have rules that protect their incumbent pharmacy owners from competition. Right. Um, right. And so, yeah, yeah. Um, so the way it sort of unravels in Australia is you get competition from someone who's big and sophisticated in another area. Um, that's how you, you end up with competition. It's very hard for small new people to enter. So if you think mm. about supermarkets, there used to be uh, agreements by um, the big supermarkets with their landlords, the uh, shopping centres, that they... You couldn't have a competitor supermarket. I'll sign the lease as long as you don't let my competitor into the supermarket as well. There were also rules about um, uh, on, in planning about small supermarkets so that Aldi couldn't do a small format supermarket under the planning scheme. And the other, the, you know, Coles and Woolies would lobby to keep those rules and say it's really important for customers that we don't have small supermarkets. And so it took a mm -hmm. big international player like Aldi who is you know, has experienced negotiating rules elsewhere to come in. Um, but yes, it's very hard for small players. And they ultimately got those planning rules changed. I think the ACCC mm. ruled against those contracts that Woolies had had uh, with supermarket uh, landlords as, as uncompetitive. Um, but it would have been very hard for any small grocer trying to expand to to take take those actions to court and lobby for those changes so that's yes exactly yeah. how it happens and um let me give you a funny story that might help mm. um you know explain how subtle corruption is so you talk about thailand and we call it sort of petty corruption where you can just sort of bribe a police officer or bribe the guy to extend your driver's license or fast track yep. something exactly yeah, yeah yeah so um that that's super common and and Economically, I think it's not um, it's not that interesting. So, uh, let me give you a couple of um, examples that might help explain. So, you're in maybe India, where there's a lot of petty corruption, and you want to get your driver's license renewed, and they go, "Oh yeah, it's whatever. This is the cost, and it's going to take five weeks because you know it's a big bureaucracy and there's a lot of corruption. It's not that organised." And the guy says. Oh, but for, you know, 100 rupees, um, I'll get it to you by the end of the day. And so you pay him the 100 rupees and he quickly puts you at the front of the queue. And you go, oh, no, petty corruption, can't have that. Well, what if the um, department changed their rules and said, 
we have, you can apply for a new license the normal way or the fast track way for an extra hundred rupees and you get it at the end of the day. Well, that's exactly the same system, except you're paying the department, not the guy at the front counter to fast track your um, license. And so the economic question is, well, does it matter? If both of those are good systems, do we really um, do we really care the guy at the front counter gets 100 rupees? Because both give you the same outcome. Um, so that's sort of how you think of things with your economic hat. It's a little bit different, yeah. right? Isn't it interesting how on the flexibility of rules and of penalties, the lower down the socioeconomic mm -hmm. la ladder you go, the more rigid is the application of the penalty. So... I'm a bank, I break a regulatory rule. I'm a casino, I break a regulatory rule. I negotiate my penalty mm -hmm. with the relevant regulatory agency. You know, it's a, it's, we sit around the table and we come to an agreement about what my penalty will be, yeah? Yep. I don't put on a bicycle helmet. This is in New South Wales. The police don't even have the discretion. Let's say I, I'm riding a bike with no helmet. They don't even have the discretion to say, oh, yeah, it's a, you were on, you're on your way to a medical emergency. You didn't have time. That's all right. We'll let you off this time. They can't do it. It's a strict liability offence. You can't even make up an excuse, right? Yeah. So wouldn't it be great if I could pay the officer 20 bucks on the spot and he would left, you know, go, all right, it doesn't matter. You know, go for it. <laughs> uh, look. <laughs> Yeah, you're, you're onto one of my other pet issues of bike helmets. It's a negotiation of the penalty. But right? in your bigger picture of casinos, um, international tax dodgers getting to negotiate how much of their tax liability they'll pay when they get investigated um, is just classic, I don't know what you call it, class warfare, entrenched power. It is just something that is so big and disproportionate that I, th I think if people thought about it too much, they'd be they'd be angry. So we try not to think about it. So after the um, Royal Commission into Banking in 2017, where we found that, for example, banks were charging dead people's accounts uh, for life insurance or you know random things once they'd already died, so that their um, uh, their their family didn't get as much money, and you know overcharging for services. Um, it was rife and it was worth billions. And the interesting thing is if I robbed a bank of just thousands of dollars, I'd be in jail. Exactly. If the yeah. bank robs me and millions of others of people for billions of dollars worth of money, they get to negotiate a settlement with the, <laughs> with the tax office or with the ACCC or someone else. And yep, that exactly. is just mad because if you've got your economic hat on and go, yeah, okay, two people broke a law, um, a lawyer's hat might say, okay, two people broke a law. An economist will go, one person stole $20 billion and one person stole 20000 One thing is a million times bigger than the other and yet one person's in jail and one person's not. They're just paying the money back. And, the, and it's the opposite person to what you'd think. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, in no other, you know, in in law, you're you're more across this than me. You know, the punishment should be proportional, right? And that's a important foundational rule because you don't want to obviously uh, um, have the same pu punishment for uh, murder as for theft, because then you just murder the witness <laughs> to uh, <laughs> escape the the the, the crime, uh, and there's no additional punishment risk. So. 
that somehow goes out the window in financial crimes um, in these big um, deals. So if you're, you know, if I if I build my house one meter too close to the boundary, they can the council will make me knock it down and start again. Do you think if Crown Casino um, took an extra meter of the Brisbane River because they're doing a develop? Is it Crown? I don't know which casino it is on the Brisbane River at the moment. Yeah. Do you think they're okay, going to make? Yeah. You're going to think they'll make them knock that down? No. So, um, you know, it's it's one rule yeah. for the elites and one rule for everyone else. And and there's quite a good simple economic reason for regulatory agencies to behave this way. All the people in the regulatory agencies want to work for the industries because they pay more. Yeah, the revolving door is very real. Uh, I, I I worked at the Queensland regulator, and I remember um, I moved to a new regulator team. for what? Sorry. Uh, so the QCA regulated the um, the access price to the Central Queensland Coal Rail Network. So if you wanted to put a train to take coal from your mine to the port on this rail network, you'd have to pay to access it. Um, okay. We, we yeah. calculated the standard charge for cons- retail electricity. Um, a whole bunch of state sort of um, price administration Um, but it was interesting because i remember this one instance um, i moved into a new uh, team and the guy i had replaced was now working for the lobbyist for the the coal industry (laughs) and um so and he was now negotiating on the other side of the phone with us on their behalf and so it's super super common super normal and we kind of wish it away by saying, oh, well, we need experienced people on both sides here to have a mature debate. I'm like, mm, you know, incentives matter. Uh, that's one thing <laughs> yeah. I agree with all economists on. <laughs> incentives matter. And you, uh, can we, get, yeah. you, can get, you can get experience, but it doesn't have to be local. You know, you can go higher internationally if you want someone from the other side. So they don't have, they're don't they not interested in rotating into the job here. They're just going to come for a couple of years and then go back. Yeah, that's, yeah. We, we, for example, in international sports, we always get a referee who's from a third country, not one of the countries participating. So we can think about, well, if you're hiring staff for a regulator, maybe that's the type of thinking you want. You want in Queensland, you want someone from WA or Tasmania, um, who's coming in to do a short-term gig, who doesn't really know anyone and who wants to return after a couple of years. It's yeah. my idea. And we did mention last week that you'd read a book about corruption and dirty money in Australia. Does that book, that new book, contribute much to our understanding of what's going on? Like what's... Yeah, no, it's slightly different. I think you're talking about The Lucky Laundry, which is Nathan Lynch's yeah. new book. And that's about um, Australian property essentially... Uh, being a useful asset to wash dirty money from China and internationally uh, because we don't have any rules about uh, um, recording the source of funds or identifying uh, the buyers of property in Australia. So the anti-money laundering rules, we've we've agreed in principle to enact these rules for the last uh, 16 years and never done it. And so if you take your dirty money from China and show up with a suitcase full of cash to buy property in Australia, you can do it and no one's obliged to ask any questions. Um, so, And does he have a theory about why or is it like convenient for certain people to have it this way? Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, I haven't finished the book. It's, I'm just in there very entertaining early chapters telling stories about um, chasing down criminals. Um, but yes, mm. it's the same incentives at play is that um, 
I think it's it's not so much so much a direct rotation, but you know, casinos like Dirty Money floating around the country. Casinos are well connected. Um, uh, politicians yeah. own a lot of property. They like it when there's a lot of money chasing property. Um, so. Well, that's know, the thing, isn't it? They're direct. definitely the investor class, aren't they? The politicians are definitely part of the investor class on both, both sides of politics. Yeah, that's definitely true. And that's definitely, you know, it's definitely the case in, um, you know, all the major um, industries. I think Australia's somewhat unique globally in that a lot of our economy is natural resources. It's all about property. It's all about mining, gas, etc. And these resources are essentially collectively owned. And so there's this economic rent left over. So if the global price for gas is whatever it is today and it costs you a fifth of that, there's this huge gap. And so resource-rich economies always have fights over who gets the, the rents, the economic rents, that gap between what's in the ground and what it's worth to trade and what it costs you to get out. Um, so that's a sort of, I think, why Australia is, I think... Um, uh, how do I describe it? It's it's probably got more of this game of mates political favoritism element because we've got more of those rents to fight over and it's more important to nurture those political relationships. Perfect place to end. Thank you very much. Good to chat again, Cameron, and uh, we'll talk again next week. Terrific. 